Hi, I'm Michael Sunoff, founder and CEO of HardToFindSeminars.com. For the last five years, I've interviewed the world's best business and marketing minds. Along the way, I've created a successful publishing business, all from home, from my two-car garage. When my first child was born, he was very sick, and it was then that I knew I had to have a business that I could operate from home. Now my challenge is to build the world's largest free resource for online downloadable MP3 audio business interviews. I knew I needed a site that contained strategies, solutions, and inside angles to help you live better, to save and make more money, to stay healthier, and to get more out of life. I've learned a lot in the last five years, and today I'm going to show you the skills you need to survive. As a salesperson or a marketer, the more that you are able to open up your mind into the dramatic possibilities of this person's life that you're trying to sell to, then that can be done by asking them questions. Do you have children? Are you married? How long have you been doing your current job? Or how did you become interested in marketing? Have you ever overcome any major obstacle in your life? The more information you have as a person who's trying to sell something or persuade somebody, the more you have to work with. And by simply aligning it in a way that they can identify it, in the same way they identify with watching Law and Order that night, they will subliminally fall into line in a way that they trust you. They trust you in a sense that they understand he has a goal, he's achieving it. I have a goal, I'm achieving it. And if you do it right, you create a relationship where you are the authority. And you can create a client that will buy from you repeatedly as opposed to just making one sale. And I hope that's the goal of everybody. But the same can be said of a trial attorney trying to persuade a jury or a teacher trying to teach a class or a speaker trying to persuade their audience, a husband trying to save his marriage, a parent trying to raise her kids, or a boss trying to manage his employees. Hi, this is Michael Sinoff with HardToFindSeminars.com. Here is a very, very interesting interview I did with a gentleman named Ruben. Ruben was a Hollywood screenplay writer and teacher, and he contacted me with a concept about screenplays and developing storylines for huge motion, motion pictures that you see in Hollywood. And he actually worked for Cameron Crowe reviewing all the screenplays that came in. But his concept was designing a successful screenplay in using effective use in storytelling and it all perfectly relates to copywriting and selling any of your products through the use of the written word. I think you'll be able to find some parallels that you can use and interject into your copy that will make it even more powerful than it is now. Enjoy. First, let me ask you this. Your screenplay product, are you actively selling it right now? No. In fact, I'm currently writing it. I have taught classes for eight years using the things that I've learned and have applied. And it's all just literally a matter of putting it down on paper, which I'm currently doing. But if you keep on reading further down in the letter, that is my major product and I think has a huge market. I mean, how many times have you seen a movie and thought, I could do better than that? Or people just sitting around having dinner say, I have a good idea for a movie. You probably know about the marketplace and the desire for wanting to develop a screenplay. And you hear of Hollywood, people are flooded with screenplays, but so few of them get chosen. Oh, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of screenplays registered each year with the Writers Guild, and that doesn't include the people who simply write screenplays and don't register them. That doesn't include the people who have an idea for a screenplay and think that they could write one if they only knew how. There's a huge market, but as I've mentioned in the letter, one of the things that I found in writing this manual for people with ideas for screenplays is that it's applicable to other areas as well, and that's what has me so excited. This system can show teachers how to teach dramatically or lawyers how to dramatically win a case. I'm reading from the letter now. Business people how to make a dramatic presentation that increases sales or how to dramatically improve your relationships or how to dramatically tell stories to your kids. And even in marketing, adequately market your product or service and make money. Now, in order for you to understand this, I think it might be best to just show you only a couple of the concepts that I have as it applies to screenwriting or telling a story, which will help you to understand some of the concepts and how easily they are to grasp, and then we can skew into other applications and you might see the potential. Does that sound okay? That sounds great. So, for example, 
Imagine you have an idea for a story or a screenplay, and you're not sure what to do, but you do know, for example, that a story is made up of different scenes. I want to interrupt you. So when you say a screenplay, I'm thinking in my head, hey, I saw this movie. I want to write a movie. The screenplay is actually almost the first step in getting the potential movie sold. It's like your resume for the movie, right? Exactly. Before you have a screenplay finished, you have to have an idea for a screenplay. That idea can usually be about anything, and I've heard every type of idea that there is. And you can have an idea from your own personal life, your own experiences, or your own imagination. You just make something up. And the screenplay is the story in writing. The screenplay is the story in writing. It's a play made for the screen. When you look at a screenplay, it's comprised of basically what you see and what you hear on the screen. Screenplays are different from novels. Because in a novel, you can have a character talking about the history of a tablecloth for three or four pages. You can have the inner memories of a character. On a screenplay, you don't see inner memories or you don't travel back in time in the person's mind to hear why they're afraid of what's under the bed. You simply have to show it. It's a blueprint. See and what you hear, and that's what the screenplay is made up of. And in order to come up with a screenplay or to learn how to write one, you first have to come up with an idea. And when people think of an idea, they think of, in terms of movies they've seen, that you know that a movie is made up of individual scenes. And for the purpose of this conversation, I'm not going to get into the actual format of a screenplay or how it's positioned on a page. What if we did a real simple one, like I'm going to get up out of my chair and go get some milk out of the refrigerator? Oh, all right, well, first of all, you'd use Michael as the name of the character, if that's what you wanted to call yourself, and you'd simply say, in terms of action, Michael gets up from his chair and walks to the refrigerator. He opens it and pulls out a gallon of milk. And that's it? That's it. So the words are creating the pictures. Yeah, you don't say, Michael was afraid as he walked toward the refrigerator. He was unsure what might be inside. That's the actor's job. So as a writer, you simply write down what they see, and if there's any dialogue, what they hear. Michael gets up and walks toward the refrigerator, and then he says, Man, I'm thirsty. Some juice. He opens the refrigerator, pulls out a gallon of milk. Uh-oh, just milk. What I want to talk a little bit about is not so much that, but how the structure of the story happens, because that's where everything, I think, flies from, is the structure of the story. We all know that a story has a beginning and a middle and an end. You may have heard before that stories have three acts. We all remember fragments of things we may have learned in a creative writing class in high school or watching Inside the Actors Studio on TV. We think we have a little bit of a working knowledge of telling a story. We all know jokes that we tell. We all can tell stories about what happened the night of our senior prom. These stories all have certain elements that are shared. Whether we know it or not, humans have a basic structure already in their head when they tell a story. I don't know where this came from. It may just stem from prehistoric man sitting around the campfire talking about the day's hunt. But somewhere along the line, we figured out with language how to tell stories to each other. And we do it all day long. We come home from work and we tell our wife what happened that day at the office. Or we tell our kids what happened when we met your mother. Or when we're kids and we're read to. You know, I've got two young kids, and I've thought about that a lot. You know, I've got a two-year-old and a five-year-old. I don't know about the prehistoric, you know, and the cavemen. They weren't reading their kids' books. But certainly now you read your kids' books, and I think that has a lot to do with it, too. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. And if you ask your two-year-old if he's speaking, he can tell you, and he'll tell you in a basic structure, a story. Say, I went outside, and there's a dog. Dog bow-wow scared me. That's a story in a few sentences. And so inherent in almost everything we do, whatever interaction there is, in fact, this phone conversation is following a dramatic structure beautifully. The introduction, and we have exchanges happening, and little tiny scenes as we go from subject to subject. Now, the one thing that is really basic, and is a good way to jump into this thing, is with the character. Every story has a character, one main character. That's their main point of view. In your story, it would be Michael going to the refrigerator or doing whatever he's doing. Indiana Jones, it's him. I mean, every story has a main character. So as somebody who wants to come up with an idea, you have to come up with a main character. It could be anything. It can be an alien or a snail or a serial killer or a dad of two kids. Now, the secret about characters is that all characters must want something. If they don't want something, it's a boring story. Nobody wants to hear it. So you have to decide, what does your character want? And you can start off with a simple sentence. My character, Bob, wants blank. Now, what Bob wants has to be an object or an action. In other words, it has to be something visible, something that we can show on the screen or on a stage. 
my character Bob wants to win the trophy. My character Bob wants to catch the killer. My character Bob wants to get married. So you can show those images to the audience. It has to be something you can show. And by starting off with this very simple sentence, my character blank wants blank, you're on your way. It could be something you can show the character getting or achieving. So you have to be able to depict it. Now, for example, a lot of times when people are starting off, they get too vague. They say, my character wants happiness, or my character wants love, my character wants victory. Well, those are nice sentiments and themes. Movies can have those elements in it, but you have to be so specific that you can show it on the screen. For example, what is happiness for Bob? Happiness for Bob is different than happiness for Lisa. Perhaps for Bob, happiness is riding in a hot air balloon with a bottle of champagne. I think I see where you're going. Maybe I'll just play a game and see if I can jump what it is. The more specific your goals are, the easier it is to get to them. And there's a parallel, right? Absolutely. So once they get it or they don't get it, which is also another option, you can have your character want a goal and fail. That's where tragedy comes from. Then you can at least depict it, and the audience subconsciously will know. They failed in their quest. How about the movie Rocky One? Perfect example. I'm glad you brought that up. Rocky One very specifically stated his goal in the first film. He did not want to win the fight. If you remember Rocky One, he said, I only want to be standing when that final bell rings. That was his goal. Did he say that at the beginning? He said that early on. Well, at the beginning, he just wanted to be a fighter. He just wanted to fight. But he wanted to fight the heavyweight champion of the world, and he knew, and I don't remember how early on he said it, but the goal was very specific. He didn't think he could win. He thought he was a bum. He just wanted to be standing when the final bell rang. That was something that was very easy to depict on screen, and at the end of that film, the final bell rang. Rocky was still standing, and the story was over. I never knew that was what he really wanted, and now that you tell me that, and that's what the ending was, it makes the story that much better. Oh, much better. Not only is it better, but it was so over. In other words, the goal was so achieved that at the end, Apollo even said to him, there's not going to be a rematch. And Rocky said, I don't want one. Now, this was before anybody knew this film was going to be a success and before they knew there was going to be a Rocky II. Now, it was so successful, they had to come up with Rocky II. And then, what is the goal in Rocky II? Well, this time, it's to win the championship. It's not just to be setting, it's to win it. How do you depict somebody winning the championship? And the way that they depicted his winning wasn't just him standing there. You remember, it was holding up the belt. It was the belt. In Rocky III, it was the American flag. It had to be the American flag draped over him. Or that may have been Rocky IV. But in other words, there was a specific visual that showed the character getting his goal. And the specific you can get, the better, so you can show it. Or maybe even not show it. I mean, it's possible to fail, but you have to be able to depict it in such a way that the audience, without being told, knows it. He failed, or he got it. He got his goal. So that's important. The character must have the desire. Now, this desire becomes the character's goal. That becomes the thrust of the plot. It's the reason that the character acts. For the audience, the carrot at the end of the stick of this goal is what keeps us watching the movie or reading the book or, in terms of the real world, reading the sales letter or listening to the lecture or the speech or the presentation. In other words, the reason the audience is watching or spending this time with whoever made this story is to discover whether the character will attain his goal or not. That's what we're doing. That's why we spend two hours in a movie or we read 500 pages of a novel. Will Rocky win the fight? Will Indiana Jones find the treasure? Will Tom Hanks get off the island? Or will he save Private Ryan? Will Frodo destroy the ring? Will E.T. go home? In the real world, these are applied to will the student get the answer to the upcoming test and get an A? Will the business client get the product or service they need? Will a child hear a story that enthralls and captivates them? Will a marketing target pull out their credit card and pick up the phone? That's how they apply in the real world. That's the desired outcome. Now, once we have a goal and the main character wanting to achieve that goal and willing to take the actions in that direction, simply give him a goal that is inconsequential is not a good idea. And here's another secret about goals. They must be life-changing. Here's where a lot of beginning writers often make a mistake. My character wants to go to the school dance, or my character wants to go to Disneyland. It doesn't do anything. There's no consequence if they don't get it, and there's no consequence if they do get it. A good goal needs to change the character's life if they achieve it. But the best goals are life-changing even if they don't achieve it.
In other words, we're on a journey to changing the life of this character, and it can be for better or it can be for worse, but major change is coming. So careful selection of a life-changing goal is necessary. Now, why do you think, is that a hidden desire of everyone? I mean, is that what is so appealing? Well, we kind of look to characters and stories because they do reflect us. We identify with stories. And in some ways, in a science fiction movie, we know we're never going to be in that type of situation, but we like to live vicariously through characters. That's part of what we do, and we like to remove ourselves from the problems of our own lives and escape in a good book or a movie or even song can be transporting if they're done correctly. And a good goal that could be life-changing not only has to have changes that are good or bad, but if you're really creative, you can almost find changes that are both. In other words, here's one. I want to care for my dying mom. Well, there's a journey towards some change that's both good and bad. There's going to be some bad when your mom dies, and there's going to be some good in the fact that your goal was to care for her while she was dying. Or I want to turn in my fellow police officers. That was the basis of a great film, Serpica. There's some good out of that, and there's some bad out of that. There's definitely life-changing either way you go. Or I want to be a martyr for freedom. Remember Braveheart. I mean, he got some good life changes and some bad life changes out of that one. So a carefully selected goal, Bob wants to blank, and blank is an action or an object he wants to achieve, will cause the audience to ask this question throughout the story. Will Bob get his goal? That's the spine. That's what they're watching for, and that's what they're going to the end of the story for. Let's do a quick example. We're talking about some things, and what kind of storyline do you think we could make for this phone call? Will the listener learn how creating screenplays can teach them how to relate a system you've learned in their own business or in their own life through multiple applications. Right. Well, it depends on actually which specific area we're talking about. But for example, in the purpose of the screenplay, will the listener learn how to tell a story? Will the listener learn how to write a story? If they're a teacher listening to this, will the teacher learn how to present their lesson plan dramatically? Will the salesperson be able to persuade the buyer? Will the husband be able to save his marriage? in terms of communications and relationships. I mean, the areas are varied. Once we have a goal, and the main character wanted to achieve that goal, and willing to take the actions in that direction, to simply give them desire would be very boring, as I mentioned. For example, I need $100. Oh, well, here it is on the ground. <laughs> How lucky am I? There's something missing there. We need an important ingredient. That is, we have to make it difficult. More difficult, the better. We need conflict. And that's the second major area after character is conflict. Conflict is the juice of drama. It's the nectar of story. We need it to hold our interest. We need it to lead us along, to excite us, to anger us, to fuel us, to motivate us, to teach us. Conflict is anything that makes it harder for the character to reach his goal. Anything. He's broke. He's wounded. Nobody believes him. He's out of bullets. In fact, I was just thinking a wonderful action film for those who like action films, and they are the most popular genre of film, Die Hard almost perfect as an action story in the way that conflict is used. You have a guy who has limited ammunition, who doesn't know the way that the building is made. He's barefoot. He doesn't know what his bad guys look like. He becomes wounded with glass in his foot. It's beautifully layered with a bunch of different conflicts. Other films that use it very well are The Abyss, if you ever saw that. Wonderful conflict. Speed, bus, wonderful conflict. They're all great examples. So let me ask you, the success of the movie, you have the screenplay first. So the person writing the screenplay, it's got to have those elements in the screenplay, or does the director and producer know about these elements to put them into the screenplay if the screenplay doesn't have it to make it a successful movie? It has to be on the page first. In fact, there's an old saying, it's not on the page, it ain't on the stage. In fact, many bad films resulted because too many cooks were in the kitchen trying to add their own input, and it was already in the screenplay. Directors come along, or a producer, or even more insultingly, business, what they call suits in the industry, studio executives who are just, you know, these young guys with MBAs, thinking about writing a story, but are just looking at what's going to make more money at the box office. We need some explosions here, guys. We need some naked ladies. Screws up the actual conflict. Now, the conflicts that I've been mentioning, which are very easy to grasp, are the outer conflicts. They're outer because they're physical. You can see them. There's also a whole area of inner conflicts, which is things that you don't necessarily see on the screen, but the actor can reveal, such as doubts and fears, phobias, insecurities, beliefs, great character stories, use this. You see it perhaps more often in novels and plays, but there are a lot of great films. American Beauty is one. 
as good as it gets with Jack Nicholson. Dead Poet Society. There's a lot of dialogue and inner conflicts that are revealed that don't necessarily involve bad guys with guns. So the secret is, for conflict, you can use conflicts both outer and inner, but the best conflict comes from other characters. Remember the secret that each character in a story wants something different. That's the key. Your main character wants something. Every other character also has to want something. You make the characters want different things, and your job is to mix it up. Measure Tom Hanks on an island, there will be other characters in your story. All of them want something. So you have to mix it up, and out of that, naturally, will come conflict. You don't even have to work at it. If one character wants a promotion, and the other character wants that guy to get fired, and another character wants to embezzle from the company, you have conflict in there because everybody wants something different. So those are two main areas, character and conflict, that will give the listener a basic idea of the spine of the story. There are a couple of other areas that we could get into, such as setting and relationships. But what I want to get into, I think, that you might enjoy more, is I want to talk a little bit about why an audience should care. In other words, how can we make an audience or a group of business people or a classroom or a marketing client or our own children care about the story we're presenting? You're creating a two-hour movie with a screenplay, or you're creating a 16-page marketing sales letter, or you're creating a 10-minute speech in front of the company. How can you make the audience care enough to listen and to tune in and not tune out for the duration of the story that you've laid out? Well, the way to make them care is to make them root for the main character. They have to want to follow this character throughout the machinations of the story. So how do we hold their interest? How do we make them care? Well, the answer is by making the main character identifiable. I'm going to explain this. We have to, as an audience, identify with the character. We have to make them care. And there are five ways to do it. I use what I call the why word. Why is in the letter Y but also it's kind of a double meaning, why should we care? All these words have whys at the end, which are easy to remember. The first way to make an audience care about your character is jeopardy. You put your main character in danger, right off the bat. Someone's trying to kill him, Indiana Jones or James Bond, or he's on a sinking ship. This will grab the audience's attention, and it subliminally tells them that this is the guy to keep their eyes on. So right off the bat, the beginning of your screenplay, put your character in danger. Second way is empathy. You make us feel sorry for him. You use pity. You start off the story, his dog just died, or he lost his job, or he found his wife cheating, or his car's been stolen. This can be done in the first scene, and it will serve to make the audience identify with the main character. Third way, likability. This is the easiest one, by the way. You just make the character likable. He lends money to his friend. He helps an old lady with her groceries. He makes a little kid at another table smile. He makes us, the audience, laugh with a funny line. People will root for and care about those that we like. This is why Tom Hanks, Jack Nicholson, Harrison Ford, Sean Connery, Meg Ryan, to use a woman, they all have an advantage before the movie even starts because we already like them, and we generally tend to like their characters. But in the real world, the same can be said of Zig Ziglar or Dr. Phil or Jack LaLanne. These are people who we like, and in liking them, we're going to tune into them, we're going to root for them, we're going to want to listen to what they have to say. In fact, this is kind of interesting to me because Christopher Reeve, who passed away, Michael J. Fox, are two guys who were very, very successful because of their likability, who had the unique experience of going from character identifiability through likability to evolving and being even more identifiable through empathy, through pity. They're both great spokes. Yeah, with their situation. Right. Parkinson's disease and, and with his spinal cord injury. That did make them great spokesmen because people like them. We like them. We will listen to them. If they come on our TV set, we want to hear what they have to say. People do listen to them. And they're using, not perhaps consciously, but using likability and empathy to create a character identifiability for them. And it works for great for spokespeople. It works for almost any endeavor, but in the purpose of this conversation, it helps to make your character in your story more identifiable. We have the Jeopardy, Empathy, Likeability. The fourth one is Authority. The character is the best at what they do. We start our story by showing them to be the best cop, the best teacher, the best race car driver, the best parent around. This is enough to get us to identify with that character. We are attracted to excellence, and it's very easy to show somebody being really great at what they do. The fifth way is affinity. In other words, we make the character like the audience. We make them have an affinity to each other. The character is one of us. The character is an everyman. 
You show the character being a struggling parent, trying to pay his bills. He can't find his car key. He's late for his doctor's appointment. And Tom Hanks is the king of this. At one time, it was Kevin Costner. They were everyman, like those people who remind us of us. Now, in the real world, as a business person trying to make a sale or a marketer trying to win confidence, this is used extensively. We do it all the time. I know of what I speak because I was just like you. And look at me now. Buy my course. It works. So you don't have to use just one of these tools. The more, the better. You use all five. Great. Harrison Ford, Tom Hanks, Tom Cruise, some of the biggest stars in Hollywood use all of them right off the bat, beginning of their film. In the real world, there's only one person that I can think of who embodies all five of these. That's Muhammad Ali. He was constantly in jeopardy in the ring. Empathy. We empathize with him because of his Parkinson's disease. Likeability. He's extremely likable and personable, and he was funny throughout his life. Authority. He was so good at what he did, we still call him the greatest. He was definitely the best at what he did. And affinity. For the African-American and Muslim communities, he's still a great uniter and people want to feel that they're like him. At one time, he was the most recognized person in the world. I believe that some of those reasons was because he had each of those wonderful character identifiability. He had all of those traits. More recently, in terms of film, The Passion of the Christ came out. Mel Gibson used all five of these tools for his portrayal of Jesus, and we all know how successful that film was. I mean, even if you're not religious, it's a great story. Jesus embodies jeopardy, empathy, likability, authority, and affinity. How many screenwriters really know this type formula or anything close to it? Well, I don't know. I mean, you taught it. Did you come up with it yourself, or did you learn it from a mentor? I got some piecemeal from many different mentors. I read every book I could find. I went to every seminar. I approached it much like somebody who wants to learn marketing. I bought the courses, and I learned it. But there is something pretty amazing about getting up in front of people and teaching. I mean, you do learn by teaching. Students challenge, especially high school students. A lot of times, it's a dialogue about, well, tell me why. I don't believe it. So a tug-and-pull type of situation, and you just kind of learn this stuff as you go along. So I'm borrowing from different teachers on different seminars on my own experiences. For two years, I worked as a story analyst for Cameron Crowe. So a story analyst is someone who analyzes screenplays or stories for... I analyzed every screenplay that came across his desk that was offered to him for directing. So for two years, whenever there was an offer for him to do something, which was every day practically, there would be a screenplay that would come across his desk. I would read it because he didn't have the time. I would analyze it. I would say what worked, what didn't work, why I liked it, why he should avoid it, why he should consider it, and then I would give him a report on it. He hired you to do this, or were you doing it on commission, or as an employee? No, he hired me to do this. For two years, I was doing this. I was in his office reading screenplays and also books. A lot of times, books would come in, and they'd want simply a blurb on the dust jacket from him. It might be a true story about a famous rock and roller, or it might be, you know, anything. Tell me a story when one of these movies that we've all heard of came across your desk before he even saw it, the screenplay. The screenplays that were read, none of them were ever made by him because he was doing Vanilla Sky at the time, which was a film that was an adaptation of a Spanish movie, and it wasn't his film. He was interested in doing films that he didn't also write because it would involve a lot less time. So his real good ones, he wrote himself. He's written all of his films. He just decided, I want to direct something that I haven't written, so that's why I was hired. As it turned out, Vanilla Sky came out, and he decided after that film, which is a good movie, that he just wanted to only direct his own words. He actually wrote another script called Elizabethtown. He's kind of like the big chill, but now. But at the time, he was an A-list director. He won an Oscar for writing Almost Famous, and he was getting submissions from everybody from Kevin Spacey, Julia Roberts, Danny DeVito. I mean, a lot of really great material. What's his submission, for instance, from Danny DeVito? What is that? Oh, it means that Danny DeVito is producing a script. He's looking for a director, so he will send the script over to different directors. Do you think Danny DeVito put the script together? He may have purchased it from a writer. He may have developed it, may have come up with a story idea. Ideas can come from anywhere. If you're Danny DeVito or Kevin Spacey or Tom Hanks and you're reading this month's Esquire magazine and you read an article that says, oh, check this out. This is an interesting story about a guy in Lithuania who lost his leg and decided whatever. And you call up a writer and you say, listen, have you read this month's Esquire magazine? There's a great story in here. Check it out. Take a look at it and see if we can make a story out of it. Or you might read today's newspaper and read a story about something that happened. You're constantly looking for stories that can be turned into scripts that can be turned into million-dollar movies. If you're a producer or you are a writer or you're a big-name actor like Tom Cruise or Tom Hanks, you are always 
looking for stories. Because that one story with all these elements we're talking about, if someone could recognize it, knows it's money in the bank if they can get a good producer. Absolutely. For example, do you remember the movie about the couple that was lost at sea with the sharks? Vaguely. It wasn't a huge movie because it was made literally with just one video camera for not a lot of money, but that was based on a true story of a couple that was left out in the middle of the Australian ocean and forgotten about for two days. That was a wonderful story. The guy who lost his arm in the Utah mountains, you're going to see a movie. Yeah, there will be a movie about that. So let's say that story happened. How would someone be opportunistic to hear about that story? Could anyone write a screenplay on that? Do they have to get permission from him? Anybody can write a story on anything if you're going to use it as a writing sample. For example, you want to write movies and you hear about this guy who cut off his own arm to escape from being trapped by a boulder. You don't have the rights to that story. He does, because he's still alive. Oh, really? So under copyright law, you can't steal that experience from him and sell it? You can't sell it, but you could certainly write it. For example, I, Michael, know I could tell this story better than anybody. So you sit down and you spend a few weeks and you hammer out this story. And you come up with a screenplay that's 120 pages, and you're really proud of it, and it's really good. You could go show it to anybody and say, look at this screenplay and use it as a writing sample. Now, somebody says, this is fantastic. I want to buy it. Well, you can't buy it. I'm sorry. It's not mine. But if you like me, then maybe you can hire me to write something else, or I have other ideas that I've made up. I see. So the best thing to do is really not to write stories that don't belong to you, but actually to make up a story or to use your experiences or the experiences of somebody in your family and use that to create a story that is your own, that you can sell, that you do have the rights to. Now, these tools and secrets that I've outlined work exceptionally well and are necessary in any compelling screenplay or a stage play or a book or a story. But in developing this approach, I became aware that many of these same principles can be useful in other areas of life. And that's what was so exciting to me and made me write you. Sales, motivation, teaching, law, business presentations, marketing, relationships, you name it. Now, the secret is it becomes possible and applicable when you make a shift from the main character being a made-up person to being you or, more importantly, your client or your jury or your audience or your classroom or your spouse. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking in my head, these characteristics you're telling me when I do my audio recordings or my interviews, they are stories. It's two people talking, but I could structure this and set it up to make it more compelling, to identify with the listener better. You're right on track, and this is, I think, going to be the crux of what you're going to find most interesting. For the sake of this discussion, let's confine our options to yourself and your client. Thinking in terms of business, forget about being a lawyer, a teacher, a spouse. Just let's talk about in terms of business, yourself and your client. There are two characters there. Any dramatic story, two characters means conflict. Because of the nature of the structure, each character must want something different. When you're in sales or marketing, that's not a good thing. You don't want you and your client to want different things. But subconsciously, your client knows that he is the main character of his life, and you are the main character of yours. He has his goals for the day. He has to finish a report or pay some bills or pick up the kids or prepare tomorrow's presentation. And if we were to break down each of these tasks into a separate little drama, if you will, he would be the main character in all of them with a little goal and conflicts and a plot and all of the things we've talked about and more that we haven't even talked about. Our lives are made up of hundreds of these little stories day after day. I need an example. Let me just set up a little scene. It's a real scene, okay? I had an eBay auction, so I have a lot of Jay Abraham stuff that's been up on eBay. Right. And then I get an inquiry from someone in Australia. They got no feedback. They've never bought anything on the Internet. It's a lady. She's skeptical. And then I want to sell my item to her. She wants to buy it. Right. That's key, by the way, that you know that while you want to sell to her and you're the main character of that, they're the main character. They're looking to buy some marketing material, but they also subconsciously know that you are the main character in your life. You have little goals and tasks each day just like him. Now, he may not know what they are. He doesn't know if you're married or if you have your car payment due or whatever, but he knows that you're trying to sell him something. Now, he does know that the short period that he's on that auction, whether he's on the phone with you or in person in the sales meeting or whatever, or reading a sales letter that you've written, he knows you have the goal of selling him something. He knows this. People aren't stupid. And he recognizes you as the protagonist in your own little drama. If he subconsciously knows that there are two simultaneous stories going on here, you want to sell him something and he wants to buy something, he knows there's going to be some latent conflict. There has to be. In sales and marketing, it can take the form of price, terms, conditions, viability, you name it. Now, if he's looking at an eBay auction, he's taking a look at the price, he's thinking of the conflicts of somebody coming in and at the last second they snipe you. He knows that maybe he's going to get 
in trouble if he bids too high and his wife finds out about it because it's going to be on his credit card or he knows that the terms are such that there are no returns on this product and you've outlined that in the auction. All kinds of conflicts. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. As a buyer, he's looking for these conflicts. And as a seller, see, this is the mistake we make as marketers and sellers. We usually try to hide or minimize them. That's drama. Now, the crux of my theory as it applies to business within a dramatic paradigm is this. You will be more successful as a marketer or a salesperson by knowing your role as a business protagonist in your own dramatic paradigm with its own conflicts and goals and settings and relationships, yet acknowledging and focusing on your client as the customer protagonist in their own little drama. Does that make sense? You got some actor words in there, but do it by example. For example, we're going to become dramatic strategists. That's what I am. I'm a dramatic strategist. And by understanding the strategies of drama as a dramatist in marketing or to become a dramatic strategist in sales, you can design, shape, and structure the plot of your client's interaction with you. All right, let's use this eBay auction. You've got a lady in Australia. She has no experience on eBay. She has no feedback. She doesn't know who I am. She's 3,000 miles away from me. She wants J. Abraham material. I've got the auction that's up there. She inquires about it. Well, you've already said it. Just describing that, you said her goal is I want J. Abrams material. So her name is Susan. Susan wants J. Abrams material. That's your goal. It's laid out. The audience is going to watch this little drama take place and wonder, will Susan get J. Abrams material? That's the question. She's the protagonist in her little drama. So the question for her is, will I get J. Abrams material? Well, here's an opportunity. Here's an option. There's J. Abrams material right here in front of me. Will I get it? We don't know what her conflicts are. But as a good salesperson or a marketer, if you were writing a sales letter or making an in-person business presentation, you could tell her. You could focus her attention on what those conflicts might be. Identify or answer any and every objection that she could exactly. be thinking. Right. We've heard it before in other sales media of applying it in a way that makes sense. And all we need is for a person to say, you know what, I love movies. And this makes sense to me because I watch TV every night. So this makes sense to me and I can apply it to an area like sales and marketing that I'm not so confident about. Look, if someone was unhappy buying my product, I'm going to give them a guarantee. I'm going to give them their money back, like most people would. But most people don't even mention it. But if you mention it in your sales letter or in your sales presentation and you bring it forward and you dramatize it, do you see what I'm saying? Identifying with it, it's going to make for a powerful sales presentation and it's proven to work better. And not just for one sale, but by not hiding or minimizing what your role is. And your role is different from theirs. You're the seller. Your goal is to get their money. You want to make it real basic, that's what it is. You can put lofty ideals to it and say, my goal is to help this person. My goal is to make them make money. But for the sake of simplicity, let us say your goal is to sell them this product. Their goal is to get this product. The conflicts that lie in the middle in terms of condition or price or terms or whatever, that is something that a bad salesperson will try to hide the conflict or they'll minimize it. They'll say, I want exactly what you want. I want you to make money and be successful in your marketing endeavors. I want you to learn Jay Abraham. Now, this may all be true, but too often in this cynical world of ours, people know it's a bunch of BS, and they know this guy just wants to make a sale. Unless you're able to, using, again, the tools that I've mentioned, make yourself identifiable to that person buying it, Unless that person knows, looking at the eBay auction, that Michael Senoff has overcome a lot of very tragic circumstances in his life and deserves my empathy, or is dying of a disease and is in jeopardy of something, or is just a great guy. Reading his letter or his auction wording, he, this guy is so likable. He has two kids. He lives in sunny Southern California. He has a nice smile on his face in his photo. This guy is a really likable guy. Not only that, he's an authority. This is the only guy in the world who is creating this particular product product for me or is making this niche or making it available to me at this particular price. So he is an authority and affinity. He's like me. He's somebody who wanted to better his life, who wanted to make some money. So in other words, unless you're able to make them identify with you and make them want to enter into a business relationship with you and they trust you not to hide or minimize whatever conflicts might come up and you address them, not only address them like a regular salesperson would, a good salesperson, but address them in this unique way by using a dramatic paradigm, by literally acknowledging and it's completely okay to say to them. In fact, I encourage people, you 
using these techniques and tools to literally not hide it, but to say, listen, you are the main character in your life. At this particular scene in your life, in your day, you're on an eBay auction. You're checking this out. There are other options. There are other things for sale. And you're wondering, should I buy this? Now, this is something you can actually write down or say to them. And you may have conflict. You may not have the money at this particular time. Well, let me show you how I can address that. I'm going to give you three easy payments over the course of three months. Or you're worried about the fact that you may not like this product. Let me address that conflict you might have. I'm going to give you a money-back guarantee, no questions asked. In other words, you use the dramatic paradigm and let them know that that's what you're doing. You say, listen, I understand that you are the main character in your life. I'm the main character in my life. Here's my goal. Here's my conflict. Here's your goal. Here's your conflict. And this is how a wonderful screenwriter would approach it. This is how Steven Spielberg addressed this story, if it were a story. And so let's make this a happy ending for all of us by addressing these things. Again, I've used it in terms of sales, but by eliminating conflict, you will achieve your desired outcome, your goal, so to speak, from your dramatic interaction. By eliminating conflict? Well, not so much by eliminating it, but by acknowledging it and overcoming it. And in a screenplay, you want the conflict there. You want to overcome it. And in a story, the more exciting and more dramatic way that you can overcome the conflict, the more exciting it is for your audience. So you don't want to eliminate the conflict. You want to acknowledge, first of all, that it's there, that you can't get rid of it, because it exists everywhere. For example, if this is costing you money, you're calling me long distance. That may be a conflict for somebody who has to call into one of those teleseminars. They have to pay for those phone calls. Those aren't free. They're not wanting to pay numbers. That's a conflict. The fact that I might have a lunch appointment in an hour, that's a conflict for me because I have to get my information to you or I have to wrap this up in a way that lets you know, hey, i got to have lunch. I don't have to tell you that, but it exists for me in my life. As a salesperson or a marketer, the more that you are able to open up your mind into the dramatic possibilities of this person's life that you're trying to sell to, then that can be done by asking them questions. Do you have children? Are you married? How long have you been doing your current job? Or how did you become interested in marketing? Have you ever overcome any major obstacle in your life? The more information you have as a person who's trying to sell something or persuade somebody, the more you have to work with. And by simply aligning it in a way that they can identify it, in the same way they identify with watching Law & Order that night, or the same way they identify with watching Tom Hanks' new movie, they will subliminally fall into line in a way that they trust you. They trust you in a sense that they understand he has a goal, he's achieving it. I have a goal, I'm achieving it. And if you do it right, you create a relationship where you are the authority and you are likable and you do have a fit in that person. You can empathize with that person and you can create a client that will buy from you repeatedly as opposed to just making one sale. And I hope that's the goal of everybody. But the same can be said of a trial attorney trying to persuade a jury or a teacher trying to teach a class or a speaker trying to persuade their audience, a husband trying to save his marriage, a parent trying to raise her kids or a boss trying to manage his employees or even without the interaction, just you yourself trying to set goals for yourself or trying to motivate motivate yourself or do time management. This works. Each of these different areas and more that I haven't mentioned can be a different manual or a different course, a different set of CDs or a different video presentation. And finally, and this is kind of, I think, even a greater extension of this idea, I can create a course on how to teach this concept so that people can apply it to other areas of endeavor that I don't have any interest or knowledge of. They can take this template and teach or design courses on dramatic strategies for sports training, for example, or political campaigning or restaurant management. I know nothing about those things. It's a template. It's a tool. All these things you're talking about are very similar to what someone who's studying copywriting would learn when you study from the masters. And what I've done is I've integrated the things that I've learned from marketing. You know, I'm not a beginner to marketing, as I mentioned in my letter. I've learned from some of the best. And things that I've learned from screenwriting, and I've learned from what I consider to be one of the best, Cameron Crowe. And my experience as a teacher, basically, I think a good salesperson or marketer takes their own life experiences and applies them to what they do. They cross-train themselves. You as a parent may apply some of your successful parenting techniques to your auction. You may use some of your auction techniques to teach a lesson to your kids this weekend at the park. It's all about integrating everything that we know. And I realized that when I was learning this, that the dramatic paradigm, you know, when we were kids, you remember in high school, we talked about this, we all learned that little mountaintop thing. Somebody, most likely a boring teacher, showed us this little dramatic paradigm and we made a copy of it on a piece of paper and at the very top we put climax. 
put resolution and we put rising action and all of those terms you maybe have forgotten, but it's simple enough that it can be, with a little bit of dedication and exploration, can be applied to anything. That was linear, and your ideas almost created exponential. Taking a linear concept and integrating it into a real-time, real-world experience in interacting with people. You've really taken what a good copywriter would look for, someone who has a swipe file. You look for winning sales letters, a sales letter or an ad or something that has worked. And if it's worked, you've got something that is proven that has touched the human on the other side who has bought that product. Right. We've all bought products from marketers that have winning sales letters in it. We've all used examples from other gurus and people who've been authorities in the field and said, I can use this sales letter that Jay Abraham wrote and I can apply it to selling my air conditioning. But what I've done is I've just expanded and not just looked at sales letters, I've looked at other things that I enjoy. I enjoy movies. I enjoy watching television. I enjoy books and I enjoy things, fortunately, that everybody enjoys. Right, you're looking at screenplays, you're looking at books, you're looking at movies. These are all stories. All those stories' job is to sell, to sell the person sitting in the movie to sit through and come out feeling great. You're selling the experience. But the formula, those six or seven things that you talked about that make it more dramatic, that heighten the emotion, that create the empathy, that do all those things, all those criteria in that story make a winning formula. So you've got a winning formula. These things that you're bringing up, at least most most of them, if not all of them, create blockbuster hits. Right, and it's one of many formulas. It's not the end-all, be-all formula. But I think it might be one that people can find accessible and one that people can say, yeah, I understand that, sure. Main character, sure. We've all heard stories as kids. We all know basic beginning, middle, and end type formulas. We all know about the fact that conflict makes for a dramatic story. And so, yeah, all I'm doing is taking something that we already know about. I know that I've thrown a couple, you said, actor words in this conversation with you, but these are things that you know instinctively already. They're subconscious things that I know I've said to you and you have nodded your head on the other end of the phone. I recognize that. And I remember that in Rocky. You brought it yourself to the conversation. Things that we all recognize and they already lie dormant in our brains that all I have to do with this course or these tools is simply go, remember that? Remember this? Remember when this happened in this movie? Remember when you saw that? And people go, yes. Okay, now pretend that's you. And pretend that's your client. Pretend that's your audience. And it works the same way. That's a great concept. It's Michael with Michael Sunoff's HardToFindSeminars.com in another bonus tip. How would you like to turn your $28 book or ebook or even a concept in your head into a $3,900 information product? I'll provide you the secrets on how to do this. If you'd like a completely free 30-day trial of my system for turning your simple book or even just a concept in your mind into an information product that you can sell for $97. $197, or even as much as $3,900 or more. This system includes a whole range of tricks and tips to help you pack your audio program full of great stories that take control of your listeners' brains. My information product creation system comes with my personal guarantee that you'll create an information product worth from $97 to $497 that's designed to sell like hotcakes. This is a 30-day free trial. If you'd like information on this, please email me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line, write in all caps, $28 book, and I'll email you information on how to turn your $28 book or even a concept in your mind into a $3,900 information product. Hi, this is Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff, hardtofindseminars.com. Here is another bonus tip and a valuable service that I offer to select clients. If you can talk into an ordinary telephone, you can be selling your own high-priced audio programs in as little as seven days. This is the easiest way on earth to create a series of powerful audio recordings for your own information product. I call you on an ordinary telephone and interview you live on a series of related hot topics about your niche subject. I take care of all the editing, all the technical stuff, and I give you the finished MP3s or WAV files and audio transcripts. I only have time to give this deluxe personalized service to a few more carefully selected 
clients. If you're interested in developing and creating your own valuable information product that you could have complete in as short as seven days and be selling for as high as $300, $500, even $3,900, please contact me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line of your email, please write info product information in all capital. Make sure I have your name and a way to contact you by phone and we can talk about your specific ideas. Or you may call me at 858-274-7851. Hi, it's Michael Sinoff here with another bonus tip from Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. It's called an audio infomercial. Your audio infomercial, which I create for you, will sell more products of yours faster, easier, and for less cost than any conventional advertising method, and I guarantee it 100%. Imagine catching yourself at concert pitch talking about what makes your business or your product service unique, what makes it special. Imagine taking a professional recording of that perfect sales presentation that I create for you and giving it to your prospect as an audio CD or an Internet download from your website. I can do this for you faster than you ever thought possible with my personalized audio informational recording service. If you're interested in this unique service, please contact me at michael at hardtofindseminars.com. In the subject line of your email, in all capitals, write audio infomercial, and I will get back with you with more information. Hi, it's Michael Sinoff here with another tip from Michael Sinoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. This tip is one that is dear to my heart, and the reason why is because I know what a difference it can make for your business. It has to do with editing your audio recordings. If you are using audio online or offline to sell, market, and educate your prospects, this tip will be the most important tip you ever hear from me. Editing your audio content before you publish it to your site simply gets better results compared to unedited audio content. Think about this. A new song on the radio may be in the editing studio for months before it's released to the public. A new movie may take years in the editing process before it's released to the big screen or on DVD. Well-written sales letters, online promotions, books, and commercials are all meticulously edited to perfection before they are released. You would never dream of releasing an unedited version of any of these sales vehicles. So why would you publish unedited audio? Unedited audio content is abandoned by the listener faster, it produces less sales for you, and it actually destroys your credibility as a publisher. So why are we seeing so much unedited content proliferating the Internet? The reason is simple. There are very few people who offer audio editing services who know what they are doing. Editing audio is kind of like plastic surgery. It's part skill and part an art form. You need someone with both the skill to do it and someone who understands marketing and selling. A poor result can be gained by both a skilled surgeon as well as a good technical editor. Who you choose to do your audio editing can be one of the best investments in your business. At Hard to findseminars.com, we have been editing online and offline web content for six years. We have perfected a proprietary editing system that has been proven to get your customers to listen to your audio content longer and to listen to it more often, resulting in more sales for you more often, and with clean, edited audio, you can demand more money for your products and services. It's just like in life. You only have one chance to make a first impression. Every time you release and publish unedited audio content, you are projecting a poor, sloppy, I-don't-care attitude that turns your prospects off. Do your prospects a favor. Service them. Give them your best. 
do them a favor by giving them professionally edited audio messages, interviews, teleseminars, and selling promotions by editing your audio. We provide full audio editing services that are fast and at a reasonable rate. We know that editing your audio content can easily pay for itself 20 times over. Call me, Michael Sunoff, for more information at 858 858- 274-7851. I'll spend some time on the phone with you. We'll determine what audio content you're publishing. I'll be glad to offer you a free consultation on my ideas. I'll review some of your audio, and together we'll come up with a solution that gets you better results. Thanks for listening. Here is another bonus tip from Michelsonoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. Did you know that I have about 25 hours of exclusive consultations on my audio clips page? letter G. If you go to hardtofindseminars.com, go to the audio clips section. This is a section where I have over 117 hours of audio interviews. Page G is nothing but consultations on information product development. You have over 25 hours of me giving my best advice on how to create, develop, produce, market, and sell audio information products. Go to page G if you want to learn how to create and market your own information products. Enjoy. There's an interview in the section of the audio recordings at Hard to Find Seminars. It's with a business buying expert. His name is Art Hamill. If you go back to my site, hardtofindseminars.com, and go to the product section, along the left side in light blue, you will see a list of topics. Look for the one that says business buying. Click on that link, and you'll be taken to about seven hours of exclusive interviews with Arthur Hamill. Arthur Hamill has purchased multi-million dollar businesses, over 200 of them in his lifetime, and he will tell you how to do the same thing. It's some fascinating content, and I wanted you to know about it. Here's another tip. It has to do with podcast. Did you know that not only are all 187 hours of my audio recordings available for free online at my website, hardtofindseminars.com, but each one of these audio recordings is also in the form of what's called a podcast. A podcast is a simple way for you to digitally and automatically subscribe to online and new recordings and have them downloaded into your mobile audio player, like an iTunes, iPod, or any other digital audio playing device. But the way you find my recordings on podcasts is by going to one of the number one sites called iTunes. iTunes is a virtual library for music, spoken word, and podcasts. The music and spoken word audios you'll pay money for, but the podcasts are absolutely free. And you can subscribe to my podcast. All you do is go to iTunes. You'll automatically download the iTunes software, and then you will search Michael Sinoff in the subject line, and you will find most of my audio recordings right there available for you to download. This is great if you're on the road or you're on another computer, and if you have a mobile device, it'll automatically suck them right into your digital MP3 player, and you can take any of the audio recordings on the road with you. They'll also automatically notify you of any new recordings that I post as podcasts. Also, if you search through Google or Yahoo or any of the major search engines, Michael Sinoff, and then podcast, you'll find other resources with other podcast search engines that host my podcast. I hope this helps, and if you're a podcast listener, I think you'll be happy about this. So go over to iTunes and download the iTunes software and search Michael Sinoff, and you'll have all my audio recordings available for you right there. If you'd like to hone your skills as a copywriter, I have available for you the largest collection of one of the all-time master copywriters. His name is Claude Hopkins. Do a search on Claude Hopkins or go to my website, ClaudeHopkinsAdvertising.com. Claude Hopkins was one of the...
of the founders of modern day advertising. He was one of the all-time legends in the industry. And myself and a partner have authored a book called the Claude Hopkins Advertising Collection. We have also searched thousands of newspapers to pull out all his classic ads. He's been responsible for building companies like Pepsi and Toothpaste, Palmolive, Schlitz Malt Liquor, many household products like puffed wheat cereal that you're still using in your kitchens today and he was the master and the genius behind this. He was responsible for many of the cars we drive today like the Oldsmobile. Go check it out. ClaudeHopkinsAdvertising.com If you want the ultimate in education on how to write copy you cannot pass this up. So go on over to ClaudeHopkinsAdvertising.com and learn from the best. Here is another bonus resource for you, and it's about a section on my site that has about 15 hours of audio interviews with copywriting experts, including Brian Keith Voiles, including Carl Galetti, including Eugene Schwartz. You will not find this content anywhere. It'll take you to an entire collection of audio recordings, MP3 downloads, and transcripts of some of my best interviews on the subject of copywriting. You'll be able to play them, download them, print the transcripts, and it's a collection you will not find anywhere else. If you want an education on copywriting, you will not find anything better than this. If you go back to my site, and in the products page, along the light blue section down on the left, you're going to see another link that has a lot of value, and it all has to do with joint ventures. Go to that page, and you're going to hear about an offer on a joint venture system like no other. If you read the letter there, it'll describe all the benefits, and the offer is virtually risk-free, meaning you can order my joint venture system, have it sent to you without paying a dime, have 30 days to review it, to digest all the information, and only if you're happy with it after 30 days do you pay. It's an offer you can't lose on, and if you're enjoying this content, you're really going to love what I have waiting for you on the joint venture link at the products page at hardtofindseminars.com. Go check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it.